1: It is a big week for social media, and it's only Wednesday. We had Monday off. Oh my goodness, Colin Kaepernick tweets his new Nike ad, Nike retweets, and it's on. Did Nike just make a big mistake, or did it lock in the loyalty of a valuable customer base? Plus, Facebook's Sheryl Sandberg and Twitter's Jack Dorsey go to Capitol Hill, and I know what you're thinking. No, Dorsey didn't go for a Civil War battle reenactment, Though with that beard, he'd make a dashing Rufus King, I'm just saying. With a bow tie? That's fresh. No, they went for a Senate Intelligence Committee hearing to talk about what they're doing to make sure foreign powers aren't futzing around with our midterm elections, which are coming up in just two months. This is Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I am John Ford of CNBC here at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square with just the people to talk about this intersection of tech and culture. Charles Duhigg, Pulitzer Prize-winning contributor to the New York Times Magazine joins me here. He's covered the legal upheaval coming to the social space, and Ellen Powell, CEO of Project Include, former CEO of Reddit, and Canary in the Coal Mine of Me Too is going to join us just a little bit later. First up, it is the 30th anniversary of Nike's Just Do It campaign, and they just did it. Among the faces of the campaign, launching at the opening of the NFL season, Colin Kaepernick former quarterback, the guy who started the national anthem kneeling controversy and who has been giving NFL team owners heartburn ever since. The text on the ad, believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. Uh, Just like the NFL, whose ratings have gone way down, Nike is getting absolutely killed with anger and boycotts. At least that's what President Trump says. I wonder if they have any idea it would be this way. As far as the NFL is concerned, I just find it hard to watch and always will until they stand for the flag. Again, that is Donald Trump's tweet on all this. But Charles, I'll take it to you. Nike stock was up today, last time I checked. Um, A a bunch of big tech companies were down today more than Nike was yesterday. How are we going to remember this 10 years from now? Is it going to be like a... Muhammad Ali moment, or did Nike just step in it?
0: Oh, this is gonna be remembered in and business schools as one of the most brilliant marketing plays of, of this decade. Okay, why? Well, I mean, so- So, basically, Nike has two constituencies that it's talking to right now, right? The first is athletes. And in in an environment where there are athletes who are trying to decide whether to go to Nike, whether to go with Adidas, some of whom just wear things spontaneously on the field, they are showing that they stand behind an athlete, Mm. even if that athlete is saying something controversial, particularly when it's a popular controversy among other athletes. But secondly, they are sending a message to Millennials to their core constituency that they are willing to stand up for what they believe in, right? Would you rather have as a customer base, 65-year-old Republicans sitting at home who uh, don't have very advanced Ideas on race and discourse in this nation. Well, you realize you're talking to CNBC. That's true That's true. That's (laughs) my favorite people don't get me wrong (laughs) Or for Nike would you rather have a bunch of under 35 year olds who are going to be buying new sneakers Who still have their consumer preferences up for grabs Mm. who now are being told we are with it When's the last time we talked about Nike? When's the last time anyone showed a Nike ad
1: on their Facebook page for free? But isn't it smarter not to have to pick? Did they have to pick?
0: one or the other? I think in today's environment, you have to pick. I mean, marketing is all about making choices, right? It's always about picking. It's about picking who your affinity is with, who is your brand speaking to. And particularly in this day and age, they have to make a choice. Hmm. Maybe we wouldn't be talking about it if they hadn't if they hadn't run this ad, sure. but we're in a time when <laughs> everyone
1: defines themselves by which side they choose. I'm gonna level with you. I, I, I don't often talk about my personal uh, choices or proclivities, but when Colin Kaepernick First started doing the national anthem kneeling thing, I thought, oh no, because in part I had just started reading. um, Actually, I just finished reading the the book about George Washington's life, um, written by the same guy who wrote the book on Hamilton. And it's been irking me for the past decade or two that in American discourse. African-Americans often feel like America belongs to somebody else, like the flag belongs to somebody else. I, I almost feel like the American flag is becoming like a symbol of a certain segment of America. And I felt like what Kaepernick was doing would perpetuate that. Would, a, a certain group of people would feel like, oh, well, well the flag belongs to somebody else. It's not my flag unless this happens, unless that happens. And I thought, oh, let's, let's not do that. But then in the reaction to it, it became this cultural moment where I felt like as an American, either you stand for free speech and free expression, or you stand for something else. And I think that's exactly
0: right. And, and, and
1: let me just say, I think there are legitimately two sides
0: to this question, right? I, setting aside the president and his ability to inflame any conversation <laughs> to ridiculous extremes, I think that legitimate people can say, I feel like as a veteran, this is disrespectful. And there are other people who can say, I think very legitimately, in keeping with this, um, our American roots, Show dissent and protest is at the core of what being an American is. Didn't we go through this with Vietnam
1: War protests? Absolutely. We've Wasn't gone, it the same thing? We've that, gone through it with flag burning. We've gone through it with every. It was disrespectful to the troops to protest the Vietnam War. And That's, what was Martin Luther King doing? Bringing up the Vietnam thing, and Muhammad Ali was mentioned, right? And this conversation
0: is at the core of American discourse, right? Mm. Whether you agree or disagree. And what's really interesting is companies that step into that discourse are probably going to win. Now, maybe not um, Procter & Gamble. Maybe not not a company that makes toothbrushes, right? Because toothbrushes don't talk to who we are. But our shoes, our sneakers, Nike... Nike has always been about being a part of that conversation.
1: And when they lose is when they step out of the conversation. Now, it's it's interesting to me too, a a couple of Nike's major competitors these days, Under Armour and Adidas. Under Armour, I started to feel a couple years ago, I was out at this water park in Pennsylvania, and I saw a lot of doughy suburban kids in Under Armour. And I thought, uh uh-oh. Under Armour's in trouble. They've they've gone into the discount stores, onto the discount racks, and these do not look like varsity athletes wearing this brand. I don't want to wear Under Armour anymore after seeing the kids at this water park. And then you have the issue of them aligning with the right. Now you've got Kanye and Adidas, and Kanye sort of not maybe saying what a lot of young people are saying. Has Nike perhaps checkmated the compre- uh, competition here? I don't know if they have allotting themselves. And I would never bet against Kevin Plank,
0: who, who founded Under Armour, right? Okay. And, and by the way, getting a bunch of pasty white guys to what, like wear your, 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 um, your gear or your shoes, that's always been a, a pretty... Or pay- out of out of shape guys in general. I said, "doughy suburban." I that's didn't right. Say that's a right. It, it's always it's always <laughs> been a winning strategy, right? It's not a lot of marathoners who are buying those 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 Nikes. But the point is that the bigger question is: Should companies not avoid controversy? controversy right? Mm-hmm. Should they avoid participating in this conversation? And time and time again, if it's done in artfully, right? And And Under Armour was criticized a little bit for doing it without a real sort of predetermined plan around it, right? Kevin Plank, I think, stepped into a situation that he would have rather have handled a little bit more sophisticatedly. But the point is, companies win, particularly lifestyle brands, particularly brands that we have an emotional attachment to, they win when they step into the conversation. And it's always scary to do so. And if you don't do it with a lot of subtlety and a lot of strategy, you can screw it up. But that doesn't mean you should avoid the conversation. And Nike is getting behind who they are, and most importantly, who their core customer is. Because they sell to young people. Let's talk about the tech
1: angle here. I heard about this story on Twitter. Darren Ravel, former co-worker at CNBC, now at ESPN, tweeted about it and he said Colin Kaepernick is the face of this Just Do It 30th anniversary campaign. He was one of many faces. It seemed to me in a way odd that Nike had let this get out there and be framed by someone else. Maybe before they framed it themselves. How has social media and, and the idea that you can react to something before you've even fully seen it changed the business dynamic here?
0: I totally, well, I'd be fascinated to know if, if we could be a fly on the wall of Nike, whether they felt like this is happening according to the plan they came up with, or if things are escaping their, their control, right? Mm-hmm. Suddenly, you have people on social media setting their Nike shoes on fire. You're exactly right. One of the big challenges right now is that social media has become an unwieldy beast, right? Not just for commercial reasons, in politics. I mean, we see it all over the place, right? And there were hearings on Capitol Hill today uh, talking exactly about this. And so it, makes it means that every choice that an executive makes is a little bit more dangerous because you don't know which way that wildfire is gonna go. Mm. But it doesn't mean that you can avoid making those choices. Not making a choice is a choice in and of itself. And maybe Nike, w- would have wished that they could have channeled this a little bit differently. But at the end of the day, we're still talking about Nike, and I don't know when the last time we had a conver- you had a conversation about Nike on this show was.
1: Very true. My guess is not recently. Not recently. And y- you mentioned Capitol Hill, so let's get into it. This is Fort Knox. I'm John Fort. Now I want to bring uh, talk about uh, social media companies on Capitol Hill. Uh, Facebook number two, Sheryl Sandberg. Face- uh, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey. We're both in front of the Senate Intelligence Committee, answering questions uh, about what they're doing to prepare for the midterm elections, making sure there's not interference. I think we've got some tape, a little bit of what they said. That's Mark Zuckerberg. He was there a few months ago. Um, Let's wait for some tape on what they said. The control room will let me know when it's ready. Largely though, it was perhaps a little bit more collegial than I would have expected. I mean, right before midterms, there are some questions. Is, uh, is Facebook being unfair toward conservatives? Is Twitter being unfair toward conservatives? Now, granted, the Senate has always been a more sober body, not as reactive as the House. But, you know, th- they pretty much had a bunch of technical questions very informed measured compared to last time when zuckerberg was on capitol hill and the responses from the tech executives also they didn't seem to be back on their heels they you know everything right. was very respectful were you surprised by that
0: well i think there's two things going on here that sort of explain why that was true the first of which is it's not clear exactly what the answer is to these problems right You have two groups, the the Congress and these tech leaders, both agreeing, this is a problem, we need to solve it, the solutions are hard to arrive at. So rather than two people having opposing viewpoints, they have the same viewpoint, and they're both admitting this is tough. The second huge benefit for Twitter and for Facebook was that Google didn't show up, right? (laughs) And so as a result, there was an easy boogeyman already in the room. There was an empty chair there where Sundar Pichai or or Larry Page should have been. And that matters tremendously because you, there's a certain amount of theater to these things, right? You, you have a certain amount of uh, performance. There's got to be a bad guy. That's exactly right. And Google almost inexplicably provided the bad guy simply by declining the invitation. Mm. I'm not exactly certain why.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a little bit odd. But here's uh, Sheryl Sandberg, who is, oh my goodness, she is smooth uh, answering questions about Facebook's response to the recent controversies. Take a look.
2: Let me be clear. We are more determined than our opponents, and we will keep fighting. When bad actors try to use our site, we will block them. When content violates our policies, we will take it down. And when our opponents use new techniques, we will share them so we can strengthen our collective efforts.
1: She wasn't even reading from the script there. I mean, there could have been an American flag waving behind yeah. her. I was ready to... It's I don't ama- know she's amazing.
0: She's amazing, particularly compared to Jack Darcy, who was reading off of his phone, right when he was giving his opening statement. And, and but this is, I think, the point is that the reason why this conversation was so controversial, so so poorly stage managed last time was because nobody really knew what the parameters were. It wasn't hmm. clear whether Facebook and Congress were sitting on the same side of the table or across from each other. And Mark Zuckerberg, is a little bit awkward on the camera. Now we've got the pros, right? Now we've got Sheryl Sandberg, who is as practiced as can be, and she and Jack Dorsey have both figured out how to have this conversation. Mm. Figuring out the vocabulary, figuring out what we agree on and what we disagree on, and what to push for. Now, that being said, there were some interesting things that came out during this hearing, right? Congress or the Senate clearly indicated that they intend to regulate. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen tomorrow and it doesn't, we don't have any idea what the regulation is going to look like, but they said, and they didn't get a lot of pushback from the executives, that they intend to step in and begin regulating social media, which could be a sea change. Could
1: be. Could be. But Could be. Uh, I've got quite The way they were questioning them, it makes it sound like they're maybe going to be in the room during the crafting of the regulations. It might not be that tough. Uh, here's Jack Dorsey. Let's, let's take a look at his approach to answering some of these questions as well. Can we roll that?
0: Our interests are aligned with the American people and this committee. If we don't find scalable solutions to the problems we're now seeing, we lose our business. And we continue to threaten the original privilege and liberty we were given to create Twitter in the first place.
1: Gotta say, Charles, I see some similarities in your fashion choices—the <laughs> beard, I... the blue shirt, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I could make it as a uh, as a reenactor for the Civil War. Although that being said, I did notice that he could use a little just for men in the uh, in the beard. He's getting a little gray as. <laughs> as do we all. You should send
1: them a tweet, indeed. (laughs) Um, So we we were just talking about the the likelihood of regulation coming down for them, but I I find it hard to imagine that it's going to be too tough. What's the sort of regulation that could really make an impact here? I I was asking at the end, there was some mention of the idea of data portability and social which I think is tough because it's not just that the value is in one person's account. If I take my data out and want to do something with it, who cares? Like my data is, here's who my relatives are. Here are a few of my pictures. Here are maybe a couple of brands and movies that I like. It's more about the other people's data that I'm connected to, and I wouldn't be able to take that out without permission, right? So the real the real threat and opportunity here is that once
0: you open up the can of worms on any type of legislation or regulation, you never know what's, where it's gonna end, mm. right? So the issue that we're talking about right now, the Honest Ads Act, for instance, which basically says you have to do the same thing online that you do offline. You have to say if you're running a political ad, who paid for it, and, and whether it's authorized or not. There's almost universal support for that, and that wouldn't be a huge change, you're exactly right. But imagine that we were to see a wide scale regulation of social media, of the internet. Suddenly you have the opportunity, and there's a lot of forces arrayed to try and push for this, to start changing exactly what the people who own these platforms have to do. Right now, Facebook, Twitter, Google, they aren't considered publishers. They're not liable for anything that's said on their platform. If they were, it would be a completely different game. And there are people who believe, with very strong arguments and great arguments, that they are publishers, that they ought to be held liable. That if Alex Jones says something crazy on Twitter or on Facebook, that Mark Zuckerberg, (coughs) excuse me, or Jack Dorsey should be able to be held accountable for it. That would change how the Internet works significantly in ways both good and bad.
1: Yeah, I'm not even sure we could have some of these sites, if uh, certainly not publishing live, you'd have to have some sort of delay if they're going to be liable for what's said.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. If there's some type of um, libel that would occur that you could hold Facebook accountable for. On the other hand, it also means that Facebook and Twitter and these other groups would have a much bigger vested interest in actually making sure that the people who are speaking online are actually who they say they are, right? Mm -hmm. Right now, Twitter is very different from Facebook. Facebook actually looks at a lot of the posts that comes across and tries to verify them. Twitter says, we don't act until someone complains, which means that you could have a bunch of right wing, you could have a bunch of liars moving markets. And Mm. Twitter is not held responsible unless someone actually hits a button to say,
1: I don't think this is true. And sometimes we do have that, as you can see uh, on the screen. If you're watching the video here, we also have Jack Dorsey back uh, on Capitol Hill giving some testimony. Now I wanna bring in Ellen Pau. Uh, once again, uh, I am John Fort. this is Fort Knox. We are talking about social media and a lot of change. Ellen Powell knows a lot about social media and controversy and investing and technology. She knows a lot about quite a few things joins us now from our One Market uh, Bureau in San Francisco. Ellen. great to have you. So you have said about the likes of Facebook and Twitter, we fool ourselves by supposing that these visionary leaders couldn't really figure this out if they wanted to. You say everyone's holding hands on the road to hell as far as not figuring this stuff out. So what changes that? What do you think Congress could do SHOULD DO AFTER HOLDING THESE HEARINGS?
2: IT'S INTERESTING, BECAUSE IT'S... THERE IS NO EASY ANSWER. IT'S NOT CLEAR THAT WE COULD SET UP THE RIGHT INCENTIVES JUST BY FORCING PEOPLE TO MEASURE POSITIVE ENGAGEMENT. WE DON'T KNOW WHAT POSITIVE ENGAGEMENT MEANS. YOU KNOW, IT'S HARD TO MEASURE. It's AS JACK SAID, IT IS VERY COMPLICATED. THERE ARE A LOT OF LAYERS. BUT I DO THINK THAT THIS FREE-FOR-ALL where you know you can uh, have any kind of content and not take any responsibility for it, where you have no accountability, has driven the platforms to where they are today. Is it a problem of the people who are running these platforms? Is it that they don't have the values that are going to drive uh, better engagement and better uh, types of interactions and more honest information and better, more authentic conversations? I don't know. It's hard to say that they're going to learn because they are the ones who created these platforms. They're the ones who have allowed them to become these tools for other governments and these um, tools for people to harass other people and these tools for becoming echo chambers. So I, I I do think there's something that needs to change. I'm, you know, I'm hopeful that there may be some market force, but I do think this need for regulation seems to be becoming more and more clear, because there hasn't been any real change. And we're seeing, like, nominal changes, but this idea that, you know, we really have to overhaul how we look at engagement, I didn't hear anything in the conversation that showed a meaningful change in how they measure engagement or how they're going to track it and encourage good engagement. And
0: an important point here is, I think Ellen's exactly right, and an important point here is that the way that the regulations are currently written, it actually has a disincentive for these companies to regulate what is going on inside their platforms, right? Mm-hmm. They're terrified of being called publishers. They're terrified of acting in a manner that would yeah. allow a court or Congress to say, we well, think you're already a publisher. you got to live by the publishing rules. And so as a result, there's, pr- there's a really strong incentive to stay their hands. In fact, one of the things that we know is that Twitter allowed Alex Jones of Infowars, um, whom many people dislike very intensely, to mm-hmm. remain on, on their platform, whereas Facebook removed him. And what I had heard from folks within Twitter is that one of the considerations was that Dorsey and the Twitter executives were worried that they would be labeled as a publisher if they take too strong a hand in determining who's allowed on and who isn't. So what they've opted for is an algorithmic approach. We're going to let AI decide. We're going to let our rules and policies decide. We're not making choices or judgments.
1: We're abiding by rules. Mm. Once we have better regulations in place, we'll probably see actually more flexibility. So, Ellen, what do you do about this? You are CEO of Reddit, which is a a vibrant, active, vocal community. The last thing you want, right, is to be accused of being arbitrary in the way you enforce rules and the way you set up punishments. So doesn't Jack Dorsey have a point here? If, If he's kind of behind the eight ball, he's tempted to react, doesn't he have to set up a structure first so that he doesn't get accused of being unfair?
2: We, you know, we started out by saying, hey, maybe if we don't get involved at all and we call it a free speech platform and we let it um, alone and we just let people do what they want to do and don't get involved at all, that seems very fair. And that seems like we are creating this equal platform for everyone. But what we've noticed over time, over the past few years, we've all noticed that actually it doesn't create a fair environment. It creates an environment where louder voices push off quieter voices or smaller subsets of people, and that is kind of the opposite of what you're trying to do with this public square analogy. You know, you really want to get all the voices out there. And when you have a free-for-all, the loudest voices, the voices who um, collude, the voices who work together, can really push some of the um, underrepresented voices off the platform. And we know that happens. And when you don't do anything, that is going to happen even more, because you become a place where... it's uh you know where these voices can get louder and louder mm. so this idea of not doing anything and you know n- it isn't actually solving the problem, it's making the problems and the platforms even worse.
1: And Charles, we got a a question in from a viewer, Rebecca Mettler. Uh, Why hasn't Twitter closed the real Donald Trump account? Hasn't he moved markets or caused a few stressful international (laughs) incidents and tried to put forth legislation and come close to violating the First Amendment by blocking people via Twitter? Jack Dorsey has said, well, there's a little bit of a different rule for international leaders, for global powers, people deserve to see, even if it's distasteful to some exactly how these people think and how they treat people. And we, we want to preserve water? distastefulness, right? I mean, look, <laughs> if the President of
2: the
0: United States says something, it is by its very nature news. And we should we should have a platform for people to be exposed to that. And we don't want to stamp out distasteful speech, right? Exactly what we were talking about before about Nike. Distasteful speech is part of... Why America has been so great is because we have a protected space for it. There is a difficult balance though, and Ellen, I thought, brought up a really good point, which is, it's not sometimes about distasteful versus tasteful, it's oftentimes about loud voices and quiet voices and trying to make sure that everyone has a seat at that table. It's one of the reasons why you guys choose who comes on this show, rather than just doing a lottery of who happens to be walking by, is because you want to make good choices. in a normal environment, this is probably a tough question that we would be able to answer through some rational approaches. The real wild card right now is that you have the President of the United States entering into this debate in a very opinionated, very fiery way, perhaps not entirely evidence or fact-based way, and that is gonna have a distortive impact on the regulation question. And so as a result, it becomes an open, an open question What's going to happen going forward? Can we come up with the right regs? Regs that make things better? Or are we going to get regs that make things even crazier?
1: Alan, what do you do about uh, the president on a platform? Tweeting on the one hand, boy, I I don't like these social media companies making choices about which voices are on platforms. Everybody's got to have a voice. But then tweeting on the other hand, that Colin Kaepernick, don't like him, can't stand to watch the NFL as long as you're not standing for the flag. Uh, He's having an impact. Perhaps on the discourse, if you're running a social media platform where he's active, what do you do?
2: If I were running Twitter, I would take him off a of platform because he has violated the rules so many times. He has um, encouraged harassment of other individuals. And it really is, you know, when you have your most visible user violating all the rules, then what kind of environment are you actually creating? You're encouraging people not to follow the rules. What do your rules actually mean? And is harassment a part of being part of the platform? I no longer use Twitter. I I stopped using it on August 8th from an active perspective. I still use it a little bit to follow the news, but there's a point where you just say, that, you know, this platform is not responsible. It's creating all sorts of um, bad outcomes. and you know, by participating in it, you are contributing to it. And by encouraging people to use your your platform in a way that is irresponsible, that is damaging and harmful, uh, you know, you've got to get those people off.
0: Can I push back a little bit on that, because, and I have a huge respect for Alan, on this one issue, I don't don't think you should remove the President of the United States from Twitter. I think even if you disagree a lot with what he's saying, even if he violates the rules, it's important for American democracy that people be allowed and able to hear what the President has to say. If for no other reason than some people might say, I don't think I want to
1: vote for this guy again, because what he's saying seems crazy to me. Is there anything that the President of the United States can tweet that gets you as supreme commander of Twitter to remove him?
0: I don't think so. I mean, let's imagine a situation where, even more so than has already happened, mm-hmm. the president starts saying things that are demonstrably untrue, that are libelous towards others, and that are, are very damaging, right? Let's say, for instance, he was to call the leader of another country a rocket man or something like that, or make fun of his height. Are you, do we really want a world where people don't know our president is saying that and thinking that? Like the whole point of these platforms, and I agree, I don't, there's a lot of times I go on Twitter and I don't like that experience of being on there, right? And I think everyone has every right to turn off anything that they don't enjoy being a part of. That being said, we live in a world where one of the great things about the internet is that we have instant access to so much information. And knowing what important people are thinking and feeling and saying, that is actually a higher good than any of the distastefulness that you might have to read when you go online.
1: Last word to you, Alan well, I'm gonna take a, I want to take a yeah. left turn, if you don't mind. If you do, uh, you have the last word on something else. But this Colin Kaepernick thing, Nike, is that a good idea?
2: What part of it? His the campaign Nike, and bringing him back on?
1: Yeah, Nike uh, putting him as one of the major faces of uh, the 30th anniversary of the Just Do It campaign. It exploded on social yesterday. In light of everything that we've been talking about, the power of social and, and how it influences yeah. and inflames, was that a was that a smart thing?
2: I think it was awesome. I think they got so much attention on social. From a marketing perspective, it's amazing the the amount of. Activity that it generated, the amount of attention it got, but also from a, you know, from a values. Like I, I, I respect them for supporting the values that um, Colin, Colin was trying to, is trying to, um, is trying to message across and encourage. I don't, I don't, I, I don't see how it would. I don't don't really see much downside for Nike on this. I think there has been some talk about boycott, but I haven't seen a ton of activity. And I know a lot of my friends and the people that I know are actually going out to buy Nike products.
1: All right. And and on social, if you want to give your final uh, thought on where we go from here uh, as Congress and the companies themselves continue to grapple with how to deal with unintended consequences of this open communication.
2: Alan? Yep, um, I would. T- I guess I think it's you know it's important to be careful and to be think and to be thinking about all of the consequences. And in a lot of these conversations, you don't hear that much about you know the the people who are underrepresented on these platforms. And to really think about how these changes will influence you know the voices that get heard and the interactions that they have. You know this concept of harassment on platforms wasn't really talked about too much, but this. It's a very powerful tool that can be used to harm a lot of people. How do we make sure that they are safe platforms for everyone and not just for the loudest voices and not just for the people who are already, um, you know, are already popular or powerful on these platforms?
1: Yeah, I remember it from the earliest days of comments on newspaper articles. Never read the comments. It was just, and now, yeah. hey, the cesspool is open. Yeah. Everybody dive yeah. in. Ellen uh, Powell, thank you so much for being with us charles thanks for being with me here thanks again to charles duhigg and ellen Powell. i'm john fort from cnbc and this has been fort knox rich ideas and powerful people subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed check out the reviews on itunes leave me a note also subscribe to the fort knox channel on youtube f-o-r-t-t-k-n-o-x dot com slash youtube and as a matter of fact you can go to youtube now and see video of this conversation or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. And if that's not enough, follow me, John Fort, on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Weigh in on the issues we discussed on Fort Knox. And meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or fortknox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.